If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're in a series entitled Genesis Act 1. We are looking at the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. We come this morning in Genesis 6 through Genesis 9 to what is arguably one of the most familiar stories of the Bible. Uh, It could be said that there is no story in the Old Testament, certainly, that has been commodified like these chapters. Noah's Ark is a cottage industry of baby room decor. If you have a toddler, you'll see endless options for plush stuffed Noah's Ark animals that you can have. If you wanted to, tomorrow you could have at your doorstep through Amazon Prime your choice of 925 different Noah's Ark playsets that you could have. Uh, Darren Aronofsky in 2004 directed, produced, and was released a, a movie called Noah, Russell Crowe. Uh, the gladiator himself plays Noah in an interesting reminder that Hollywood isn't the best biblical interpreter for us, but it was a graphic gripping movie that certainly was successful in describing the wickedness of humanity. That movie went on worldwide to earn $360 million. Noah's alive and well in our culture. You can, if you want to, I mean, you could get in your car this afternoon and you could drive to Kentucky and you could stop at the uh, Noah's Ark replica The Noah experience, the ark experience, it is a $73 million investment so that you can have this immersive experience in these chapters. You know, I think in some respects, these kinds of stories are elusive to us and uh, they elude us because we feel as if we are so familiar with them. Not all of you grew up in the church, so I don't in any way presume that. But even if you didn't grow up in the church, I would imagine you feel a sense of familiarity with the story of Noah and the ark. If you grew up in the church, this was, this was one of the stories you literally cut your teeth on in preschool, nursery, teaching lessons. You heard this in Sunday school. You heard this at vacation Bible school. And so there's a sense in which the familiarity with the story becomes a hindrance to us hearing anew and afresh what the actual meaning of this story is, not only then, but now in our context. So I want us to hear anew the story of Noah. And I want us to hear anew through answering two questions, two central questions to the story that is before us this morning. And the first question I want to pose, and then prayerfully from Genesis 6 through uh, 1 through 7, I want us to ask and to answer, why the flood? Why the flood? Genesis 6, starting in verse 1, reads, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit. Shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days, shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, 
These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And in verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The problem of this passage is found in verse 5, that the stench of sin has risen to the nostrils of the infinite creator of the earth. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And it wasn't only evil, but it was only evil continually. This doesn't surprise us. This is really the crescendo of an account that we have that starts in the Garden of Eden where sin infects the original Adam and Eve. It spreads to Cain and Abel. It spreads to uh, marriages as we see in Genesis 4, the first instance of polygamy. We see in Genesis 4, the the story of Cain and Abel, the first homicide. We saw in Genesis chapter 5, last time that we were together, that sin spreads and uh, there is this finite day that we have, all are born and all die. Every person, all societies are affected by sin. And so God's response, as we look upon the unnatural examples and the unholy alliances that are being formed in Genesis chapter 6, is, is that He will reset. And, and, and we wonder to ourselves, is that what He's doing in this passage? When I was a kid, maybe seven, eight, nine years old, I wanted a Nintendo. That's what I wanted, a Nintendo. That was my Christmas wish list. I didn't want a Nintendo for Super Mario Brothers. I didn't want a Nintendo for Duck Hunt. I'm aging myself here, but some of you are following me. I wanted a Nintendo for Tecmo Bowl. Tecmo Bowl was the height. I got an amen out of that. Choir, do you have a pen so I can write what gets me an amen in my notes right here? So so I wanted, I wanted Nintendo Tecmo Bowl because I could play with my brothers and Barry Sanders could just run all over the field and he would be the Bears and they'd be Walter Payton and there would always be this place that oftentimes happened about the third quarter where one of us got so frustrated that we could just push the reset button. And it, it didn't matter if the score was 49 to 7, we reset just start it over. Now, there was a couple of pushes and shoves and a, a lot of fighting that went on around that. But we wonder to ourselves as we're reading this passage, does God get so frustrated with this creation that he, in the midst of just being overdone, just presses reset? And it's important to look at this passage closely because there's a lot going on in the first four verses. We're introduced to the sons of God and the daughters of man and the Nephilim. What are we to do with all of these things in this passage that elude understanding from us? Uh, Kenneth Matthews, who's a wonderful Old Testament professor just down the street at Beeson Divinity School in Sanford's campus. He has a two-volume commentary in the New American Commentary. He's got 20 pages 
on these four verses. There's 65 footnotes. So it's important for us to understand as we talk about the sons of God and the Nephilim and the daughters of men that this isn't a place that our interpretation should be held with the sense of uh, being dogmatic. There should be charity involved in our interpretations of these passages here. There have been a variety of ways that scholars and pastors and teachers of God's Word have looked at the identity of these things here. We should be dogmatic about the virgin birth. We should be dogmatic about the literal, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. But dogmatism has no place around this interpretation of sons of God. There are three primary interpretations that have been passed down through the ages of church history and interpretation. The sons of God have been identified as descendants from the line of Seth. Other interpreters have looked at them as powerful kings of the age. And others have looked at them as fallen angels. So what is it? How do we look? There are strengths and weaknesses of all of these interpretations. They take us in different directions. But I think the best biblical evidence, while I would hold this uh, loosely and, and even with charity here, the best evidence is that the sons of God are literally the, the most fantastical and supernatural of interpretations is that these are fallen angels. These are fallen angels. So why would I say that? Well, if you look in the Old Testament, sons of God, it's a phrase is used in Psalm 29, verse 1, in Psalm 82, verse 1, in Job 1, verse 6, as descriptions of angels. The New Testament has two passages, Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2, 4, that references fallen angels who did not stay with their own position of authority. So what we have in these first four verses is what seems so fantastical and so, so supernatural that the fallen angels are actually inhabiting the bodies, possessing the bodies of men in the height of wickedness and having unholy unions. And the offspring are these great men of renown, the, the Nephilim. The word Nephilim actually means, in the original language of the New Testament, fallen ones. Fallen ones. And so, in these first four verses here, it's easy to get lost in the weeds of interpretation, but it's important for us to, to get above and to be able to see that what is being described is the way that humanity is fallen and the way that sin has spread and corrupted everything. The reaction of God is what we read in verse 6, that he's grieved to the heart, that he regrets making man. In verse 7, he says that he is sorry that he made man. The logical question of anyone reading these passages is, does God regret like us? Does sin cause God to actually change his plan? Well, it's important to take, uh, never take a t passage out of context, make it a pr uh, proof text that is in a pretext. So looking at the uh, larger council of Scripture, Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So our God does not experience human emotion like we experience. He doesn't experience emotion like we do. He's not surprised by sin. We experience life sequentially. We're one, and then we're two, then we're three, then we're four, then we're five, then we're six. We experience it day by day. God, as a timeless being, experiences all of his existence in this eternal present. So he's not surprised that this would be 
the, the culmination of human wickedness. He creates all of the earth knowing that it is going to come to this place and that his wrath and his judgment would come down upon the earth, but wrath and judgment would not have the last word, that there's grace and mercy even in the midst of the condemnation of this widespread sin that infects and affects everything that exists. It's important for us as we think of sons of God, daughters of man, the Nephilim, to not get lost in biblical trivia, but to see the way that this is being described, that God experiences emotion, that he is not a being that is unmoved, but he is a being that our actions have an effect upon his divine emotional life. It is beyond our understanding, but your sin grieves your creator. My sin grieves my creator. That our sin actually matters. Paul would say it this way. Do not, he says to the church at Ephesus in the fourth chapter, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now he doesn't experience grief in a one-to-one correlation like we do. He doesn't experience emotion in a one-to-one correlation. But he experienced, there, there is a sense in which our sin affects God. Our sin grieves our Savior. At the very essence of who God is, He is holiness. At the very DNA of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is this perfect righteousness. So our sin comes into contact with this perfect righteousness and it grieves Him. He hates sin. He hates sin at the very essence of who He is because He is a holy God. And it's important for us because we live in the 21st century where sin is a three-letter word that is just not in the vocabulary of our culture and often not in the vocabulary of our church. We have this therapeutic kind of conversations about sin. Sins get transformed into mistakes. There are failures. There, There are missteps. There are mishaps. So sin gets transformed. We're, we're not dishonest anymore. We just tell white lies. We don't hoard any longer. We just secure for the future. We don't commit lust. We just do a little window shopping. And so, so we do this way of transforming sin. And, and sin are mistake, mistakes. They're mishaps. They're missteps. And I think we need to hear Rosera Butterfield Champagne or Champagne Butterfield, uh, her words about this are very helpful words that I, we need to hear. She says it this way, sin is not a mistake. A mistake is taking the wrong exit on the highway. A A sin is treason against a holy God. A mistake is a logical misstep. Sin lurks in our heart and grabs us by the throat to do its bidding. My sin grieves my Savior. Your sin grieves your Savior. And so the question then becomes, if our sin is really what nails Christ to the cross, if our sin is what is covered by the blood of Christ as it flows from His brow, when was the last time that you grieved over your sin? When was the last time that you wept over the sin that still so easily entangles all of us in this room. Sin is more than a mistake. It is more than a mishap. It is 
holy treason. But sin, judgment, and wrath do not get the last word in the story. Why the flood? Why the flood, church? Because sin grieves the heart of a holy God. There's a second question. Just two questions this morning. Why Noah? Because as we hear the wrath of God, as we hear the judgment of God, we have this conjunction at verse 8 that is a, a hopeful place of grace and mercy because we read, but God found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man in verse 9. He's blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Just a restatement of what we've heard in these first seven verses. The earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself, in verse 14, an ark of gopher wood. This is how you are to make it. Or excuse me, make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it, in verse 15. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Breath, 50 cubits. Height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above. Set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. We, we contrast Noah to what has come before. In the midst of the darkness of humanity, there is this bright ray of light Upon this person, Noah, he, he is described as blameless. He's described as righteous. He's described as one who walks with God. Walking with God is something Enoch did in the last chapter. Walking with God is something Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. And so Noah is a person that listens to the commands of God. He is a person that is not perfect. Not to give away the end of this story, but we will see very clearly that walking with God is not synonymous with moral perfection. And so Noah is one who is blameless and he is righteous in the sense that everyone around him is making their own way and Noah is listening to the way and the word of the Lord. Genesis 6 verse 22 sums it up for us. God says, do all of these things and the estimation that we have is Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. God didn't come to Noah and say, listen, I'm, I'm going to put you in on a secret here. We're getting fed up here. We're starting over. Figure it out, Noah. The waters are going to rise. You better figure it out. No, none of, the, none of Noah's salvation is left up to Noah's imagination, initiative, or ingenuity. That, that Noah receives from God salvation, and his salvation is solely found in God's plan and is sustained by God's plan. God comes to Noah and says, hey, build an ark, but it needs to be 300 cubits long. It needs to be 50 cubits wide. It needs to be 30 cubits high. There needs to be an opening on the side here. The roof needs to be here. These are three decks that you're going to have. Again, Noah's salvation is through Noah listening and obeying the word of God. As the waters rise, Noah is secure because he's listened to God. As the waters recede, Noah is secure along with his family because he has listened to God. And there's a gospel truth to this. 
There's a gospel truth to this that your salvation, like Noah's salvation, is fully and wholly accomplished by God's initiative, God's imagination, and God's ingenuity. That your salvation and my salvation is not found in us, but He, God, is the sole source of our salvation and He is the sole sustainer of our salvation. That we join with the reformers saying that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. The reformers would say these are the solas. That it isn't this kind of Benjamin Franklin self-help. If you, if you meet God halfway, then he'll, he'll do the rest. If you do your part, then God would do his part. That's not the gospel. The gospel is clearly found as a picture of Noah. Now, Noah had a response that he had faith in the plan of God to be his sole source of security. Noah could have rejected that plan. He could have been like all of those outside of the ark as the waters rose and he was overcome by the water because he did not listen to the word of the Lord, but rather he was secure and he was safe because he trusted in God's sovereign plan. What about you? Do you know that security? Have you, have you trusted in the finished work of the gospel that desires to put you in this, this picture of the ark? That you are safe and that you're secure. Come what may this side of heaven and come what may in eternity. That ultimately he has you fully in his hands. But you're not resting on your salvation. In your ingenuity. In your initiative. In your good works. But that you are looking to him for your security. You're looking to his word for the very thing that will make you secure now and forevermore. There's a sense in which as believers that we are called to live in the ark in the sense that we've trusted Christ. And it's a sense in which we are called as those who have said yes to the finished work of the gospel, have admitted our need for him, believed in the finished work, and committed our life to him, that we tell others through our words, through our actions, not only in our families, but in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, as we're light and as we're salt, pointing people to the only true source of security, and that is God's word and God's plan. But there's also a sense, there's also a sense in which you and me as believers, this isn't just have you trusted Christ as your Savior, but we also have to understand, are you continuing to trust him as the one who provides safety and security even when the floodwaters of life rise? Because there's a way as believers that we can come out of step with his plan for our life. That you know that as a believer that you can quench the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you know as a believer that you can walk ahead of God or behind God? Do you know that God will allow you even as a believer to go left instead of going the right way of his plan? And there's some of you in this room who know without a shadow of a doubt that you've trusted him as Savior, but you're not trusting him in your daily life to lead you and to guide you. And I'll tell you one way you're going to know that. You're, you're going to know that you're not walking in step when the floodwaters of life begin to rise. 
You're going to know that you're out of step when the floodwaters of life rise. Yes, we, we, we will get to this later on in this sermon series. But yes, we look at the rainbow and the rainbow promises us forevermore that he, he is not going to flood the earth as he, uh, as he did in this account. And so we have this sense of security. But we also need to be reminded that floodwaters continue to rise. And there's some of you in this room that know what the floodwaters of financial strain feel like in your life. There's some of you in this room that know what it's like to hear the howling wind of disease in your life. There's some of you in this room that know exactly what it's like to hear the thunderbolt and the, uh, the, the, the lightning bolt and the, the thunder crackle at the, the sound of a prodigal son who is not coming home or a prodigal daughter who has years, years of life in a foreign land. And Dawson, you understand this, don't you? You live long enough and you will get wet in life. You live long enough, you will know what the wind feels like. You will experience the waves, the storms. I was 24 years old and I'd Graduated from right down the road at Beeson Divinity School. I went to pastor in Pascagoula, Mississippi. We were there for a year. And the storm Katrina came through. And it came through our church. Five feet of water. Came through our house. Four feet of water. 95% of our church members lost everything that they own. And it's a very visceral Experience. Some of you know what it's like to call Serve Pro. Some of you know what it's like to have your home flooded or to have some kind of disaster that hits you. So, so you know what it's like. But I tell you, I, I had never experienced anything like that. So going back into my home, Danielle is seven months pregnant, just overwhelmed in this kind of visceral experience of walking into your home and smelling what it smells like to have the gulf rush in to your home, to, to feel the invasion that has, that has no prejudice. It gets every form, the, those rising waters that just dismantle everything. We had one memory box that we took with us, but everything else was affected by the rising waters. And to come back in to our home and to see the refrigerator that was, had floated from one room into the next room that, that rested in our living room and everything out and the, the stench and pulling up the, the carpet and just being overwhelmed. It is just this emotionally overwhelming experience, this spiritually overwhelming experience, this physically overwhelming experience. And right next to that refrigerator, I looked and, and one of the first reminders, not from myself, but from God, that, that he had me and had our family and had our church family in the midst of the storm was that that hymnal was open to Luther's great hymn of the faith, a mighty fortress is our God. And I looked and I wept as I read these words, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Let good, goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. 
I don't wish those kinds of experiences upon anyone, but I, I tell you this, at the age of 24, it was the best thing that happened in our three-year marriage at that time. That was the best thing that ever happened in our ministry because what it showed me in that moment and in the weeks and the months and really the years to come is that you can lose everything as a believer of earthly value and not really lose anything. That, that, that really, that this is, this is what we're talking about here. That whatever comes in your life, you can lose relationships, you can lose opportunities, you can lose possessions, and still, as you feel the wind, as you experience the waves, as you wipe your brow, as the moisture of the floodwaters are all around you, in that moment, this truth remains that you are secure in Him. This is life. The floodwaters will rise in your life. And for some of you in this room that are walking outside of the will of God, I'm here to tell you as the floodwaters rise, you will sink and you will feel the pressures of life absolutely overwhelming you and it drives you to bitterness against God and it drives you to bitterness to those that are around you. But there's another way. A way that is not found in you. It's a way that's not found in me. It's not about being better. It's about being connected to the one, to the Savior, whose buoyancy is eternal. That no matter how high the waves of life come, you rise up with them because you are abiding deeply with Him. And in the midst of the howling wind, and in the midst of the rising waters, in the midst of what you face, you know you are secure because you are in his ark. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you that even now, even now, Lord Jesus, you desire to remind us are we putting our hope in our stuff? Are we putting our hope in our health? Are we putting our hope in people? Or does our hope reside in you? Help us to reflect upon that question.